Welcome to Voices in Health Law, the podcast of the American Bar Association Health Law Section. I'm your host, Andrew Dimitriou. I'm a senior counsel at Hush Blackwell in Los Angeles, California, and a former chair of the Health Law Section. Today, I'm pleased to be in conversation with Catherine Driscoll, a partner in the law firm of Morrison Forster in Washington, D.C., to discuss fraudulent practices in the conduct of clinical trials of drugs and recent trends in enforcement by the Department of Justice Consumer Protection Branch. Kate, please take a minute to further introduce yourself and give the audience your background with this subject. Well, thanks so much, Andrew. Again, my name is Kate Driscoll. I'm a member of the firm's of Morrison Forrester's Investigations and White Collar Defense Practice Group. I focus my practice on investigations and enforcement actions, especially in the, in the healthcare space. Prior to joining MOFO, I was an assistant United States attorney in the Eastern District of Pennsylvania, where I have a lot of experience in healthcare fraud cases. I'm excited to be joining you here today, Andrew, to talk about clinical trial fraud enforcement trends. Good. Well, let's start with a basic question. Let's define clinical trials fraud. How do you understand that term? So the Department of Health and Human Services defines fraud and research misconduct as fabrication, falsification, or plagiarism in proposing, performing, or reviewing research or in reporting research results. So what does that mean? It could potentially include recording false or misleading data, failing to disclose data that would normally be reported, submitting misleading reports regarding the conduct of the trial, and submitting false data to government agencies for consideration for publication in journals. And in addition to fraud, we have other investigative risks in this space, including foreign influence, conflicts of interest, kickbacks, cybersecurity, and data privacy risks. So a lot of areas of potential exposure for companies to be thinking about. Well, whenever I you know, think about a, a subject like this, the question jumps to mind of, why would anybody do this? What's what's in it for a person who would be committing clinical trials fraud? Well, I think the answer is money, like most like most fraud. As I'm sure this audience is well aware, especially during the pandemic, there was a lot of government funds available for folks who were developing clinical trials, especially related to COVID. It's an opportunity for individuals who are looking to engage in some sort of fraud. So, so they're in it for the money. <laughs> They're in it for the money. I mean, you know, fraudsters, whether it's clinical trial fraud or another type of opportunity, where there's money, fraud will follow. So let's talk a little bit about who the potential victims are of uh, fraud in clinical trials. Is it individuals? Is it companies? Is it the government? Is it all of them? So I think that the Deputy Assistant Attorney General Arun Rao put this best when he spoke at a recent conference talking about the dangerous consequences of clinical trial fraud. And he explained that clinical trials and fraud in clinical trials pose significant risks to the American public. The FDA relies on clinical trial data when making important drug approval determinations with the goal of ensuring that all FDA approved drugs are safe and effective. So if you have falsified clinical data that can have dangerous consequences if relied upon by the FDA, by researchers, medical doctors, when making really important decisions about public health and safety. In addition to the specific harms that come with clinical trial fraud, it may serve to undermine the confidence in the healthcare industry writ large. And so the FDA and the industry itself must be able to rely upon the accuracy of data as a general matter. So now clinical trials are obviously sponsored by a drug company, somebody who's trying to get a pharmaceutical into the marketplace. Let's describe a little bit about what their responsibilities are 
as far as uh, sponsoring a trial, choosing the facility that's going to be doing the trial, picking the researchers who are going to be leading the study. So uh, let's let's bring that perspective in. Sure. So I think that the recent enforcement actions that we have seen confirm that the government statements regarding clinical trial fraud are not empty warnings. So for the first time in years, DOJ, with the help of FDA's Office of Criminal Investigations, is bringing wire fraud and false statements prosecutions for falsified data in clinical trials. Now, the examples that we have seen to date focus on individuals, not sponsors, but individuals who have engaged in egregious misconduct. I think, though, this serves as an important demonstration of that companies, especially those who are sponsoring these types of clinical trials, need to be thoughtful about who they're hiring and what monitoring they're doing in this space. But there's an implication here. I mean, I wouldn't want to be an executive in a drug company pushing something through, getting my FDA approval if there's bad data supporting, you know, the studies that that did it, do you think that that in that context, then the drug company is potentially liable for not discerning that there was fraud in the underlying research that supported the FDA clearance? I think that's where the DOJ and particularly the consumer protection branch is going. And they're going to look beyond the individuals. They're going to look at the corporate actors. They're going to look at the sponsors and see what types of conversations did the sponsor have with the CROs? What was the oversight and the communication flow? Were there red flags that were missed or were identified and not followed up on? Were there escalation procedures? Was there any self-reporting to FDA and in some cases to DOJ? So certainly DOJ is expecting cooperation from the companies and for them to also be vigilant in watching for clinical trial fraud. Now, is there any systematic system, you know, in the in the context of people who are accredited to the Medicare system, there's an exclusion list that you can look at to determine whether somebody who is a provider has in fact been excluded on the basis of fraud or other bad conduct. Is there any similar system in place where a drug company could look to see if a CRO has been in trouble before? I think it's helpful for sponsors to think about doing background checks, and that can include identifying prior lawsuits, government enforcement actions, even looking at overall financial stability, which will help inform the diligence. And beyond that, I think companies should be thinking about requiring documentation of the CRO's compliance program, asking about controls, policies and procedures, training programs, et cetera. It really is, I think the government is putting the onus on big companies who are sponsoring clinical trials to do some of the heavy lifting for them. Now, is this a phenomenon that's likely to occur with greater or lesser frequency depending on the nature of the sponsor? Is there a likelihood that more sophisticated companies who are regularly engaged in drug trials are more likely to adopt the kinds of measures you're talking about by way of due diligence on the CROs as opposed to startup companies or others that don't have the same level of of sophistication and experience? That may be true. As we know, for startups, the compliance function tends to grow with the company, but anyone engaged in this space needs to be thoughtful about how it approaches a clinical trial fraud, given the enforcement trends we're seeing here. By way of example, we see in the unlimited medical research case, which happened in 2021, where five individuals were charged in connection with fabricating data in a clinical trial designed to investigate the safety and efficacy of an asthma medication in children between the ages of four and 11. 
And what happened there is that the defendants entered into an agreement with their CRO to conduct the study, but they essentially invented records of pediatric clinical trial participation. They falsified medical records to make it appear as though pediatric subjects had scheduled visits there, that they took the drugs as required, they received checks as payment for participation, when in fact, none of those things happened. And so many of those individuals ultimately pled guilty. But the, the key here is that it was a global pharmaceutical company that was a sponsor that raised concerns to the government about the CRO flagging irregularities in the data. And so that's a plug for the helpfulness of data analytics. Certainly in my time at, at DOJ, we relied on data analytics to spot red flags and irregularities. And so we're seeing these bigger companies get smart and start spot checking and auditing CROs and individuals who are conducting clinical trials. So let's talk a little bit about the enforcement side of things. For how long has the consumer protection branch been on the hunt for clinical trials fraud? And were there particular events that have precipitated this attention from the Justice Department? So Andrew, I think the impetus behind this really comes from the COVID-19 pandemic. And the first time that we see the consumer protection branch really talking about clinical trial fraud is in November of 2020, when the director at the time specifically singled out clinical trial fraud as a key area of drug and device-related enforcement. And he went even further to say that good science is critical, and just as scientific breakthroughs have the potential to greatly improve public health, the opposite is also true, right? Bad research has an equally potential to do um, great harm. And in the context of the pandemic, you know, we have to be, uh, you know, the CPB has to be aggressively investigating and prosecuting that type of misconduct. Now, is this a fairly substantial initiative? I mean, those of us that have been around the healthcare space are well aware of the strike forces that have been created to attack Medicare fraud and Medicaid fraud, things of that sort. Is there a, a similar emphasis in terms of resources uh, being devoted to this type of uh, fraud? I can speak to my experience in EDPA as a prosecutor, and certainly we had a healthcare strike force that focused all of its attention on this type of conduct. But the CPB in particular has dedicated a lot of resources. So just by way of context, the CPB is one of six litigating components of the DOJ civil division, but it has the ability to bring both criminal and civil charges. And it's the principal component charged with enforcing the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. And so the CPB has grown tremendously in the last couple of years. It's now more than 200 people in CPB, more than 100 prosecutors, it's the fastest growing enforcement component at DOJ. In the last two years, they've come out with a recent highlights report that talks about all their accomplishments in, in the last few years. And there's a focus in those reports on the recent litigation and resolutions relating to clinical trial fraud. So I think we're gonna see a lot of action with the CPB and then working with local US attorney's offices and healthcare strike forces to bring these types of cases. Now, on the other side of things, talk a little bit about what the FDA's enforcement mechanism is like. Do they have a body internally that's somewhat like the, the OIG within Health and Human Services that initiates investigations and then cooperates with the Department of Justice? So I do think we're seeing, usually the investigations start, I think, at the FDA level. And what the FDA has, they have an Office of Regulatory Affairs that conducts inspections and recalls. 
And they have like a mini FBI. It's a team of criminal investigations called the Office of Criminal Investigation. And they, they tend to work in coordination with the drug centers like CEDAR and ORA to ensure compliance, right? And so the interesting part about that group, though, is that the criminal investigators tend to work in secrecy from the rest of the FDA, often will team up with the U.S. attorney offices around the country. So there is coordination there, um, although I think recently in conversations with, with colleagues, um, there's been a bit of a fracturing in determining who's going to bring the case and who's running the investigation. But certainly, in theory, the FDA works with the DOJ to investigate these types of matters. Let's switch gears now and talk about the role of lawyers or others in ensuring compliance on the part of the CROs. What, if you're representing a company that's a clinical research organization, what are you, what would you tell them about how they should conduct their trials? What sort of compliance program should they adopt in order to remain on the right side of the law in this area? So I think a big part of this, Andrew, is is training and educating, you know, clinical investigators, CROs on the investigational plan and protocol, the applicable FDA requirements, including the consequences of noncompliance. So the first level is making sure that they're educated on what they can do, can't do, and what the consequences are. I think the next step for companies, mostly the sponsors to be thinking about, but even the CROs is, you know, you want to monitor the clinical trial to ensure compliance, right? And so, you know, even for the sponsor level, it's a core obligation of the sponsor, even if it's being delegated to the CRO to continue monitoring and ensuring compliance. And I think that aside from monitoring investigators and sites, there should be a plan for independent auditing of higher activity investigators. So like if there's high volume enrollment, there should be a plan and a process for auditing that particular clinical trial, whether it's early on or midway through the study, there needs to be an ability to question things that seem like outliers and to investigate whether they truly are. And if they are, then they need to determine how to handle that and whether it requires pulling the clinical trial. And I've had clients in the situation where they ultimately pull the trial just because they're concerned about the data integrity. They can report it to FDA and in, in some instances, even to DOJ. Are there firms that have emerged now, and I don't need to mention any specifics, that actually are focusing on this as an area either to provide the data analytics support you were talking about or otherwise assist in a potential investigation either by a sponsor or even by a CRO investigating itself? Yeah, so I think depending on the size of the company and the level of the clinical trial, you know, outside counsel can assist in any sort of investigation. Certainly, I've had some clients where there have been concerns about, you know, whistleblowers or red flags that were raised, and they want an independent outside counselor to do that investigation. At the same time, I think I'm seeing a lot of the data analytics be run in-house, although I'm sure there are, there are companies who can assist with running the data analytics. But I think it's important for companies because we know that the DOJ is looking at data analytics for companies to invest, whether it's internal or external, into looking at the data. Because at the end of the day, when the government comes knocking on the door, you want to be able to say, look, this is what I've been looking at. This is how we basically were memorializing our process and that we did all the right things in terms of compliance. Do you foresee new regulations or other regulatory guidance? There's a lot of the CROs that have grown up over the years that really are just doctor practices where the doctor began doing an occasional investigation and now has 
kind of transformed into a clinical research site and is not practicing medicine as much. But those organizations often probably lack sophistication. So are there going to be standards where some of these CROs will, will either have to come in compliance or they won't be able to participate? So I think we have not seen recent action by the government to increase regulation, though it's not uncommon for the, the law to kind of trail behind the activity. And we see that even in the enforcement space. So I think that the government, depending on the amount of clinical trial fraud that we see in the coming years, will really need to think about how to regulate, who to regulate, and how much of a burden can they put on companies to meet those types of measures. But I think in terms of looking in my crystal ball, I think that where the DOJ is going is looking beyond the individuals and these kind of low-hanging fruit cases where the conduct is truly egregious. And I think they're going to look beyond kind of wire fraud and obstruction, and they're going to look at using the FDCA, look at using the False Claims Act, a very helpful tool for the government. And they're going to look at sponsor activity, their oversight of the CROs. And I think it's going to expand in terms of the scope and potential liability for companies. So that's why it's important to be proactive and to think about potential opportunities for enhancement to mitigate risk in this area. This has been a, a very enlightening session, and we really appreciate your uh, willingness to share your knowledge in this area for the benefit of our listeners. This is the Voices in Health Law podcast. Please subscribe to our podcast, and we hope that we can bring you more thoughtful episodes like this in the future. Thanks, Andrew. The Health Law section would like to thank our premier sponsors for making today's podcast possible. Five-star premier sponsor, AAA four-star premier sponsors BRG and VMG Health, and three-star premier sponsors Pinnacle Health.